0: From The Cut and Gimlet Media, this is The Cut on Tuesdays. Play right, play right, play right.
1: I'm your host, Molly Fisher. I'm, uh, I'm Cynthia Nixon. I'm delighted to be talking to you.
0: Maybe you're a Cynthia Nixon fan from Sex and the City, where her character, Miranda, was the one who would reliably call bullshit when the others were acting insane or maybe you just got to know her last year, when she ran a left-leaning campaign for governor of New York. That's when she got a chance to bring her no-nonsense intelligence to a new audience and to talk about bodies and freedom in a way that sex in the city hadn't touched.
1: When I was running for governor in Union Square Park, there was a a reproductive rights and abortion rights rally happening, and I brought a wire coat hanger with me, and I held it up. And I think there was kind of a little bit of a gasp. With the coat hanger in her hand, Cynthia told the crowd that her mother had had
0: an illegal abortion in the years before Roe v. Wade.
1: I know it was illegal, and I know it was a really, really horrendous experience for her. It was just a difficult thing, a difficult decision for her to make, and the fact of it being illegal made it all the more harrowing. Her mom would never tell her the details of what happened during her abortion, only that it had happened. So it was really important to her that she'd tell me and that I know this and that I carry this fact about her and about our family forward, but she did not want to discuss it.
0: Cynthia has carried her mom's story forward. Now, though, with abortion rights under attack, she feels like she needs to be direct and explicit in a way her mom wasn't able to. You're used to hearing political candidates talk about abortion in abstractions like choice and life, but a coat hanger is something different. A stark visual reminder of what's really at stake.
1: If we're going to talk about these issues, we need to talk about what we're talking about. We don't need to put, you know, tablecloths and doilies on them, right? Yeah. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about women who feel they have no other option and who may be right that they have no other option taking a piece of metal and inserting it into their cervix and doing themselves a lot of harm and maybe dying from it.
0: It seems like recently a lot of people have decided that it's time to talk about what they're talking about when it comes to abortion. The extreme laws that have rolled out in Georgia, Alabama, and Missouri are upfront about what they're trying to do. Ban abortion outright, not just slash away at access in the way that's been happening for years. The people who want to end abortion rights are saying what the stakes really are. And so people who want to protect those rights have to do the same. That's what Cynthia was trying to do. And that rally last year wasn't the first time she talked publicly about her mom. She also remembers talking about her mother's abortion in another speech a while back.
1: After I was done, a woman came up to me and introduced herself. And she said, I have to tell you, I loved your speech. And I have to tell you, I knew your mother. We worked together in the 60s. And we were friends. And she said, and I never knew this happened to her. And she said, and I had an illegal abortion, too, and she never knew that about me. And imagine how we could have helped each other if we had known. You think of a hanger, and you think of a woman alone,
0: desperate, with no information and no other tools. And that kind of isolation is terrifying. On this week's episode, we're looking at the ways women have found to help each other, how they've taken matters into their own hands to get other women the care they need, even when legal abortion is not accessible they are stories that are more important than ever, as the possibility of losing the legal protection of Roe starts to look more real and more terrifying. We're going to start with a story from the days before Roe, the same era when Cynthia's mom had her abortion. It comes from one of my colleagues here at Gimlet. So, hello, Wendy. Welcome.
2: Hello. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Do you want to introduce yourself for the Cut on Tuesday's listeners? Sure. My name is Wendy Zuckerman, and I'm a science journalist and the host of Gimlet Media's Science Versus.
0: A while back, Wendy got interested in a group of women called the
2: self-helpers. At the center of that group was a woman named Carol Downer. And she basically traveled around the country teaching women how to do abortions. Carol's in her 80s now. And when Wendy went to visit her, she found a woman who was sort of surprised by the way her life had played out. She kind of described herself in the 60s as being quite conservative. Um, You know, the women's liberation movement was kind of rearing its head She would see these protests of women who were fighting for birth control, and she wasn't interested in it.
3: I I think down deep I was disapproving that they were just so open about their sexuality that they even needed birth control. That's Carol. You know, in other words, they're in college, they're not even married, so what are they, you know, they should at least keep their mouth shut.
0: By the 60s, Carol was struggling— her marriage was failing, and with four children already, money was tight. When she became pregnant again, she and her husband decided she should get an abortion. A friend gave her a phone number for a man who could do it, and she made an appointment with him.
3: Let's just say his office was an empty room with one exam table in the middle of it and a tray of instruments, and uh, that was it.
2: She gets naked from the waist down— spreads her legs, and she literally has no idea what he's doing.
3: I could hear it, and I could feel it. And the procedure itself was just excruciating.
0: Afterward, Carol went home to recover. She put herself to bed and fell asleep.
3: And when I awakened, I could hear the birds outside singing. And I remember being really happy because I was still alive. And I didn't even myself realize how afraid I was that I would die.
2: The reason that Carol was, like, so relieved that she was alive was because she had heard all of these stories of botched abortions that had happened and women who had used knitting needles or coat hangers and had ultimately bled to death. The abortionist had
0: told Carol to call him in a week, and it turned out, This wasn't just to see how she was doing.
2: She calls him on the phone and he says, I need you to look between your legs.
3: And you will see that there is a a little strip of gauze that is hanging out of your vagina. You need to take that out. I went in the bathroom and and I um, started to pull it. Well... What I found was that it was all hardened. And, you know, in order to pull it out, it was like pulling something as sharp as a razor out of my uterus. I went into cold sweats, you know, with the pain, and I could only do it, you know, a tiny bit at a time. Oh, my gosh. It took me a couple of hours to pull it out, and when I finished, I had a stack of this hardened, dried gauze. Carol's body was a mystery to her.
0: She didn't know how it worked or what the abortionist had done to it. She hadn't even known that she had gauze inside her for a week, until she found herself pulling it out. At the time, though, she was sort of resigned to this. Pain and confusion were just a normal part of being a woman. It was only over the next few years that her relationship to her body began to change. As the 60s became the 70s, Carol became more interested in the work being done by those feminists she used to wish would just shut up. She read books like The Feminine Mystique. And then, crucially, she learned that a lot of the men who were performing illegal abortions didn't necessarily know what they were doing. And that made her think, maybe she could learn. She started shadowing one abortionist to see what he could teach her, The first step, for Carol, was learning about her anatomy. And she remembers the day that felt like a real revelation. She was watching as a patient was examined with a speculum, and she saw a cervix for the very first time.
3: And I realized how easy it was to see, how simply constructed it was, how healthy and beautiful and accessible. There was that aha moment.
0: Carol grabbed a spare speculum, brought it home, and for the first time, looked at her own cervix.
3: It was mind-blowing. You know, I went weak in the knees. I was just that bowled over by the whole experience.
0: Seeing the cervix made her body seem less mysterious. Her uterus wasn't some remote, hidden piece of equipment. It was basically right there. Carol wanted to share everything she was learning with other women. So she placed a carefully worded ad in a feminist newspaper and held a meeting at an L.A. bookstore. A bunch of women showed up. But when Carol started telling them what she was thinking, that they could learn how to perform abortions themselves, the crowd wasn't having it. As far as they were concerned, Carol was just some lady. Why would she know what she was doing? She had to convince them. She needed them to see what
3: she had seen. So I went over to the next room where there was a desk. And I got up on the desk, lay back.
2: And she scrooches
3: up her dress, and she spreads her legs. And I put speculum in.
2: And she says, come on, ladies,
3: have a look. Wow. Were you nervous? I was petrified. Petrified. I mean, I thought, they're going to think I'm, you know, an exhibitionist. (laughs) But I just got to do it, because otherwise they're never going to understand.
4: It was just like a bucket of cold water thrown on me. We were just blown away. I mean, it was the most revolutionary thing. That's Francie Hornstein.
0: She's one of the women Carol met when she took her speculum on the road. Carol was traveling the country, showing her cervix to strangers and encouraging them to get to know their own. Francie was 24 years old, and she just dropped out of college to focus on her work with the Women's Liberation Front.
4: We were just, like, levitating, And we all bought our little speculum for $1.50 or whatever it was and took it home and then showed all of our friends. She
0: decided to move cross-country to join Carol in the work she was doing.
4: I have never had a time in my life that I don't think any of us have that was so exciting and so uplifting that we were prevailing.
0: Carol and another woman named Lorraine Rothman had co-founded the Los Angeles Feminist Women's Health Center. Lorraine was the one who developed a new kit that their clinic could use to do early abortions, the kind that happened within the first few weeks after a missed period. At the time, early abortions were often performed by using a metal tool to scrape out the inside of the uterus. The kit that women started using, on the other hand, had a narrow tube that went up through the cervix and used suction to draw out
2: the uterine lining more gently. They called it menstrual extraction, Mm -hmm. I should tell you, because, I mean— then they could basically say they weren't doing abortions, they were just extracting menstruation.
4: Well, we might as well do a demo.
2: It's technically pretty simple, uh, and Francie showed me how to do it by using... She got out a glass of water and then put the device inside.
4: If it was in a uterus... The gentle suction created in the jar would suck out what's in the uterus. You can hear the, the
0: straw-like suction. They weren't the first ones to use suction to perform abortions. But the kit they devised at Carroll's Clinic was enough of an innovation that it was eventually patented. And it was
2: made out of very simple materials. They kind of MacGyver it together, basically. They use some like aquarium tubing, uh, a mason jar. Uh There's like a syringe with the needle taken out. That's what's the pumper. So it's all very like, you know, um, like artisanal Brooklyn circa
0: 2008.
2: Isn't it? (laughs) Isn't it really? I was like, a mason jar? Okay.
3: And that's what we discovered. This is a pretty simple procedure. We can do it ourselves. Just as the same way that we can master how to cook and sew and, <laughs> and, and garden and do other things in this life. These are skills we can, can learn together.
0: The clinic did deal with some safety scares. A few times, women developed minor infections. And at one point, Carol was arrested by the LAPD and charged with practicing medicine without a license. Wendy asked her about
2: this idea— that she wasn't qualified to do the work she was doing. Some people listening to this, I think, might get quite uncomfortable with this idea that, you know, your team didn't have medical training. How were you kind of defending the fact that you were doing abortions?
3: It was very easy to defend because, for one thing, the reality of back-alley abortions was, um, was there and women being forced to carry pregnancies... So all of these very serious, horrible things were happening to, to females. So when that was the case, we didn't consider it to be very hard to justify what we were doing. So when you have such an irresponsible, patriarchal government, that is what you have to do. You have to find ways to subvert it.
0: A few years after Carol and the self-helpers set up their clinic, the Supreme Court handed down Roe v. Wade. Abortion became a legal right in America. What I love about Carol's story is the way it suggests an abortion counter-history. Terrifying, unsafe, back-alley abortions were real. But so were the self-helpers, with their mason jars and aquarium tubing, traveling the country to help women understand their bodies. They saw their cervixes, and they realized that they could take control of their lives. No one else had to give them permission. They had the power. You can hear way more about the self-helpers on Wendy's show, Science Versus, in the episode called The Abortion Underground. There's so much we did not get to include here, including a legal case that became known as the Great Yogurt Conspiracy. Check it out. And after the break, abortion on the high seas. Welcome back to The Cut on Tuesdays. On this week's episode— we're talking about what it looks like to take abortion into our own hands. I spoke with Erin Carmon, a senior correspondent for New York Magazine. She covers gender and the law. She joined us to talk about some of the changes we might see if Roe v. Wade gets overturned. And she pointed out that the basic science of abortion has evolved since the days before Roe. Back then, if you needed an abortion and you weren't lucky enough to have met someone like Carol Downer, you didn't have many options.
5: It used to be that the only way you could end your pregnancy yourself is to hope you took the right combination of herbs or throw yourself down the stairs or ask somebody to punch you in the stomach. It is now the case that there's a lot of information online on how to safely end your pregnancy by ordering pills.
0: When people talk about an abortion pill, they mean two drugs, mifepristone and misoprostol. You take one followed by the other, and they essentially cause a miscarriage. You have a lot of cramps and bleeding. If you live in a place where you can go to a clinic, they'll give you both. And taken in combination, within the first three months, they're over 90% effective at ending a pregnancy. If you're trying to buy pills online, you might just get misoprostol. It's an ulcer medication, and it's pretty effective at ending a pregnancy on its own. So the methods people actually use to have an abortion, that's one big change from the world before Roe. The other big potential change is the law.
5: I, I think that we have to imagine a landscape in which Illegal abortion is medically safer and criminally more vulnerable.
0: Under the abortion bans that existed before Roe, very few women were ever prosecuted for ending their pregnancies. But things could be very different in a post-Roe future, Irin said. There are several reasons for that. First, people think and talk about abortion differently than they did back then.
5: We live in a time where there's been much more emphasis on the humanity and the personhood of embryos and fetuses. Whether it's ultrasound technology, the politics around how people talk about abortion as murder, it really wasn't viewed as murder before. People who oppose
0: abortion now talk about it not just as a tragedy, but as a crime. Where there's a crime, there's a criminal. And now we have new ways to catch criminals.
5: We also have a lot more ways to surveil people's behavior. So women who have been prosecuted for ending pregnancies on their own, even now with abortion being legal, their email inboxes, their texts that they sent to their friends while it was going on. And so if the state would like to prosecute women, if abortion is illegal and abortion is considered murder under the law and women are then prosecuted, We know which women are the most likely to already be prosecuted in our society, women of color, poor women. For a long time, it's been politically
0: taboo to treat women as criminals for getting abortions.
5: During the presidential campaign, Trump was asked about punishment for abortion. And he said the answer is there has to be some kind of punishment.
6: Do you believe in punishment for abortion, yes or no, as a principle? Uh, The answer
7: is that there has to be some form of punishment. For the woman? Yeah. Yeah. There has to be some form.
5: And he backed off because that's not one of the approved anti-choice talking points. Everyone
0: freaked out. Yeah, I remember that. Everyone freaked
5: out. It was a rare moment of honesty. And the message instead was, only the doctor will see a penalty. This is a kind of paternalistic gloss. And the reason they do that is because they know that prosecuting women is a political non-starter.
0: Or at least it seemed like a political non-starter two years ago when Trump was a long-shot primary candidate. At the time— Everyone figured he was just veering off script, saying whatever crazy thing, as is his tendency. But in retrospect, it seems like a harbinger of something bigger, something new.
5: What happens when there is no doctor? What happens when a woman has just Googled how to end a pregnancy on her own? Whose fault is it then? And I think we're already getting the answer. Local prosecutors are already going after women who end their pregnancies themselves.
8: As long as people have been getting pregnant,
5: people have been ending their pregnancies.
0: Farah Diaz-Teo is a legal expert in self-managed abortion. That's the term for women ending their pregnancies without a doctor's help. She works at an organization called If, When, How. And Farah says that you don't have to imagine a dystopian future to see women getting arrested for their abortions. It's already happening.
8: In the U.S., there are six remaining states that have a crime on the books that says you can't end your own pregnancy. Which ones are those? Oh my gosh. Because like <laughs> This is like pop quiz. Sorry. Um, okay. So the remaining states, South Carolina, Oklahoma, Nevada, Arizona, Idaho, and then all, oh, Delaware.
0: Farah said remaining states. That's because until very recently,
8: like earlier this year, New York had one of these laws on the books too. In New York, as recently as 2011, a woman was arrested for allegedly ending a pregnancy using a, an herbal tea. That she drank. That is insane to me. I mean, that in 2011, that that would be the case. Yeah. And like right here in Manhattan, right? Yeah. Like, like the people who, you know, were working in those offices are probably still there. They're probably at work right now, like drinking a cup of coffee, right? Like this is, this is very real and present and good news that New York passed the Reproductive Health Act and repealed the self-abortion law. But, you know, it's, it's something that can happen in the present day in states that still have laws on the books.
0: Laws that specifically ban ending your own pregnancy aren't the only kind that lead to arrests. In some places, there are also laws against harming fetuses. So, for example, if someone who's pregnant is shot, a prosecutor could charge the shooter with two deaths. Laws like that are supposed to protect pregnant people, but they can also be used to charge people who miscarry or get an abortion. There's really a whole grab bag of other laws that a prosecutor can apply to a woman ending a pregnancy, if that's what a prosecutor is inclined to do.
8: So we know of at least 21 people who have been prosecuted since the year 2000 um, for either ending a pregnancy or helping somebody else do so. Mm. And we know that there are probably more because every time we look, we turn up more cases. Jennifer Whalen is a woman in Pennsylvania whose daughter needed an abortion.
0: Jennifer's oldest daughter was 16 when she found out she was pregnant. She told her mom she didn't think she was ready to have a baby yet. So they started looking to see how she could get an abortion. Going to the nearest clinic meant days off work and taking the family car, plus money for the procedure itself. The pills Jennifer found online cost $45. She followed the directions that came with them in the mail, but her daughter got scared when she started cramping. And so they were concerned and took her to the ER. A doctor can't actually tell if you've taken an abortion pill, its effects are just like any miscarriage. But Jennifer didn't know that, and she wanted to make sure her daughter got the treatment she needed, so she told them about the pills. Her daughter was fine. The pills worked, the emergency room sent her home, and they called Child Protective Services and reported Jennifer.
8: So she was charged essentially with, with abusing her daughter, right? She was charged with unlawful dispensation of medication, so essentially like being a pharmacist without a license, and of assault of her daughter and child endangerment. And she ended up pleading guilty to felony unlawful medical consultation and was sentenced to 18 months. Ended up going to jail and being separated from her daughter for doing exactly what I think any parent would do under this circumstance. Her daughter needed an abortion. They couldn't get the abortion they needed in the clinic. She found a way to do it safely, and that landed her in jail.
0: Vera has a whole host of stories like this. And when you hear them, you want to imagine someone swooping in to the rescue. And it turns out, there is a woman who has spent years literally sailing to the rescue of women desperate for access to abortion. That woman is Rebecca Gompertz. She's a doctor from the Netherlands, and she spent 20 years
7: helping women get abortions. So during my training as an abortion provider, I started working with Greenpeace. And so when I was sailing with Greenpeace, I started talking with women that I met in Latin America. And then somebody said, well, hey, actually, if you have a ship and you go to International Waters, which is 12 miles offshore, then the local criminal laws don't apply anymore. And so this is when I I started the first research to build up Women on Waves.
0: Rebecca started Women on Waves in 1999. The project was a shipboard mobile clinic that visited countries with restrictive abortion laws to bring women mifepristone and misoprostol.
7: We used a ship that can go to international waters from countries where abortion is illegal, then take women on board. And then they can get the abortion pills in international waters and we bring them back. The first ships were, like, big, and we had a mobile clinic that was designed by an artist. But in order to swallow a pill, you don't need a clinic. So in 2008, we started using a sailing yacht. Uh, we could take five to seven women at a time to sail with us to international waters, which is, like, one and a half hours or two hours by boat. And then women take the pill there, and then we sail back.
0: The ship was a statement. It attracted attention, which helped spread the word about the pills. It got Rebecca on TV so she could explain how the pills worked to women who were watching. And it spurred the country she visited to reveal the strength of their opposition.
7: For example, when we did a campaign in Portugal, the Portuguese government at that time, which was in 2004, they sent warships to stop the ship from sailing in. And this actually also happened in Guatemala. And I think what is important there that when this happens, we understand that this is not about women and health. This is about something more profound. This is about fundamental freedoms when the military starts intervening in women's bodies. And actually the campaign in Portugal led to the legalization of abortion there two years later... But, you know, there's always a very strong response from governments and from protesters. And it's like it creates this kind of mythical idea of these women that are taking over and occupying a male domain because the sea usually is controlled by men. Mm. So what happened after that is that we started getting so many emails from women all over the world. When is the ship going to be here? I need help now. What kinds of things would the women say to you when they came on board or when they were on their way out into international waters? One of the women in in Mexico, she said it so beautifully because we said, you know, we can also help you here if you want to. You know, you don't have to sail out. There's also ways that we could help you here. And I said, no, I want to sail out with the ship because I want to have a legal abortion.
0: In 2005, Rebecca translated the mission of Women on Waves into Women on Web. It's a site that provides online medical consultation and affordable pills, priced on a sliding scale, to women in countries without legal abortion. Women on web had been getting messages from people who needed abortions in the U.S. for a while, but they'd always focused on countries where the situation was more dire. Last year, though, Rebecca decided she needed to do something. So she started a new organization, Aid Access, specifically to help people in places like America.
7: I founded 8 a year ago, exactly, in order to be able to help women that I knew were in need, but that didn't fall really in the group that Women on Web is focusing on. Um, and then on the March of eight, I got a letter from the FDA ordering me to cease with my work. Rebecca had expected anti-abortion
0: backlash when she started working in America. But getting a letter from the FDA was weird. The FDA doesn't regulate doctors— and they definitely don't regulate doctors in Austria, where Rebecca is based.
7: I'm a doctor. I work under my jurisdiction. I'm allowed to write these prescriptions. And the women can fill these prescriptions by a pharmacy where that can be done. Uh, and actually, it's my duty as a doctor. When people in need of care, medical care, reach out to me, I have the duty to help them if I can. And uh, and that's what I'm doing. That's, that's what I will continue to do, and that's what I'm doing. Rebecca has continued her work. When we
0: asked the FDA whether they were going to do anything about it, they told us they couldn't comment on potential future actions, but that they remained concerned that aid access was bypassing, quote, important safeguards designed to protect women's health. A little while after the FDA sent their letter to Rebecca, 118 members of Congress sent a thank you note to the FDA commissioner. All but one of them were Republicans, and only 10 of them were women, or fewer than the total number of Jim's, Mike's, and Steve's. In the face of opposition, Rebecca needed a lawyer, someone to advise her on legal issues in the U.S. And some American abortion rights activists put her in touch with Richard Hearn, who was willing to help her pro bono.
6: Yes, there was a letter. I've seen the letter, but uh, I could care less, with no disrespect.
0: (laughs) What was your reaction when you first saw it?
6: I'm worried about what courts say and uh, and what people think— Probably the least I'm worried about is what uh, congressmen say about anything. The FDA is trying to frame Rebecca as a drug exporter, importer, just leaving out that she has patients, that she's a doctor, that her patients have a constitutional right to the treatment she's prescribing. They're just ignoring that.
0: Richard previously represented an Idaho woman named Jenny Lynn McCormick, who faced five years in prison after taking pills to end her pregnancy. Richard got the charges dismissed. And then he brought a class-action suit that got the law she'd been charged with taken off the books, along with a bunch of other laws in Idaho. Which is to say, Richard has dealt with this kind of thing before. Of course, Rebecca has too.
1: Was it
7: at all scary to be attracting this kind of government scrutiny? Well, I'm glad that I have had 20 years of activism, so I have already dealt with warships. <laughs> so I don't think this one is much worse than that. Um, and they, these were actually armed warships. So, I mean, the show off of power of some governments and states uh, and the abuse, the abuse of power and the, the, the bullying that goes with it, that's something that I've stand up to before. So that doesn't intimidate me anymore. I know what I need to do. I cannot refuse women that are in such desperate need. It would go against everything what I learned as a doctor, against everything that I am as a human being.
6: I have great admiration for her.
0: When Richard looks at the work Rebecca is doing, he sees an unstoppable force.
6: Aid access is, in my view, the biggest threat to the pro-life movement in the United States that there's ever been or likely will be. And in my view, aid access or something similar will make abortions, especially early abortions, accessible for all women, regardless of circumstances in the United States. The government will be unable to stop aid access or other groups, they're going to lose. In the course of time, they are going to lose. The Supreme Court can't stop it. State governments can't stop it. President Trump can't stop it. Those congressmen and women can't stop it. It will happen.
0: What do you think the future might look like for women seeking medical abortions if Roe were to be overturned?
6: I I must preface my answer with, I hope Roe is not overturned. I am pro-Roe, but whether or not it's overturned in the future, young women and older women like my two daughters will probably have in their medicine cabinet misoprostol and mifepristone to take when they think they need it. Don't just have it there the same way I have Motrin uh, when something hurts. The internet will be the salvation, but hopefully in my lifetime, women will really be able to choose by opening their medicine cabinet and choosing.
0: If you think about the U.S. government track record vis-a-vis wars on drugs, I find it hard to imagine that these pills are going away. Women will have them in their medicine cabinets. The question, in my mind, is whether we'll have them in there next to the tampons and neosporin, just another everyday tool for dealing with our bodies, or if instead we'll be hoarding them, passing them from one woman to another, mother to daughter, friend to friend, whispering because we're scared of getting caught. With or without the protections of Roe, women are going to keep finding ways to help each other. And over the last few weeks, as new abortion restrictions have been signed into law, advocates working on the ground have heard from lots of people who want to help and lots of people who need help.
9: We've spoken to callers who are afraid. People call and say, Can I still go to my appointment? Is it now illegal? Like, should I be looking at clinics elsewhere? And our big thing is reassuring them that abortion is still legal in Georgia, in the South, and the country as a whole.
0: Quita Tinsley is the deputy director of Access Reproductive Care Southeast, which is the only abortion fund in Georgia. They help make sure women have the money they need to get an abortion. Because access isn't just a question of what's legal. It's a question of what you can afford. Quita's group also works with women in Alabama, Florida, Tennessee, South Carolina, and Mississippi. They say the last few weeks have been overwhelming. So many people want to know what they can do.
9: We've gotten a lot more donations than normal. <laughs> um, it's a little overwhelming. Like, I have access to our email that the donations come through, and I had to turn it off. Because my inbox was getting overwhelmed. And so for me, that was this amazing feeling. And for us as a fund, it was an amazing feeling to know that like, wow, people do care about the work that we do, even if other days it doesn't seem like it. And it's nice to feel like we'll be able to support Southerners. But also it kind of brings up this wonder, right? Like after the headlines stop and the media focus shifts, will people still care where the donations keep coming in, right? And so, you know, we've gotten a lot of donations, but a lot of those donations aren't recurring or monthly. And so... While we're so happy people care right now, we also hope people continue to care and continue to show up because this is a long fight, right? And we hope that people are joining us for the long haul and not this moment.
0: If you want to help, you can donate to an abortion fund by visiting the National Network of Abortion Funds. Their website is abortionfunds.org. You can give directly to the National Network or to any of the abortion funds around the country listed on their website. Also, while we were working on this show, we learned about a site that's basically consumer reports for abortion pills available online. It's called Plan C, and you can find it at plancpills.org. That's it for this week's show. We'll see you next Tuesday. The Cut on Tuesdays is produced by Sarah McVie and Olivia Knapp. Our senior producer is Kimmy Regler. Were edited by Stella Bugby and Lynn Levy. Mixing is by Emma Munger, Katherine Anderson, and Ben Lapidus. Our music is by Emma Munger and Haley Shaw. Our theme song is Play It Right by Sylvan Esso. That's Amelia Meath, Nick Sanborn, Molly Sarlay, and Alexandra Sousermanig. Special thanks to Elisa Wells at Plan C, Robin Marty, the author of Handbook for a Post Row America, Candace O'Brien at the Yellowhammer Fund, and the Science Versus team. And if you like the show, tell some friends to listen too. The Cut on Tuesdays is a production of Gimlet Media and the Cut.
9: Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin a culture, pride our many intersectional identities and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month.